please become a Patreon and support the show. Merci. And now our host, Stephen Lee Morris. Before she was an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, she was an op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Before she was an op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times, she was a theater reviewer and essayist for the LA Weekly. Erin Aubrey Kaplan has been in journalism since 1992. She currently uh, teaches literature at Antioch University. Erin Aubrey Kaplan, welcome to Animal Farm. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for having me. It's so good to see you. Well, likewise, it's 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 been a long time, and it's such a it's such a pleasure to see you again. I, last time I saw you was in in the theater before the in, in the the COVID. You um, were in the theater, and yeah. you you actually studied theater. This is before your journalism days at LA yeah. Weekly, LA Times, New York Times, and all kinds of other places. Uh, so you were at UCLA in the MFA acting program. I was. I um, followed a time-honored weekly tradition. Um, <laughs> I came. I, I, I studied theater. I, I was. In, I was doing an acting degree, actually. Although I always had aspirations to write, but I really also was interested in performing. So I, you know, I got into this program in 1985 um, after having got a, gotten a degree in English and not knowing what else to do with myself. But I went. <laughs> I did want to study the craft, but um, it was a very interesting experience. Um, um, very um, kind of an eye, a very eye-opening experience. Um, I was told by my department advisor that, you know, like we had to audition for plays every quarter. That was one of the requirement of the program of about you know ten graduate students, and I was my and you know. More, a couple of times my department advisor said, well, don't buy, you, know, you know, don't audition for the Ibsen play. There's just, you know, there's no part for you. And our audiences expect dot, dot, dot. So he, he talked about audience expectations. And I was, remember feeling very discouraged thinking, well, I understand that. That's how Hollywood works. But <laughs> it's not Hollywood, I, or so I thought. And I was really disappointed to hear that um, that I could not be, I was not, useful. I, I was not the right color. I couldn't be in the shows they were doing. So I, it, it felt to me not uh, just wrong. Um, so it, it was, I guess maybe it was helpful in the end because uh, I thought, I, I projected all this and I thought, how am I going to do out there in Hollywood itself? And, and, you know, I really admire actors, especially actors of color who really have to beat the bushes, beat the pavement, make things work. And I just realized I don't have that kind of uh, I'm just, I'm not made of that kind of tough stuff. <laughs> and um, so I ended up not really pursuing acting, but I did go back to writing. Um, that's another story that actually has to do with theater, but we can talk about that later. Okay. So that's the background. So um, the term systemic racism was alive and well uh, in, in your graduate education. And it was a manifestation. I, I, as we said before we went on air, I was telling you the story. I just watched, um, as part of a class, I, I, I watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factories, the Gene Wilder that was released, I think, in 1971, directed by Mel Stewart. Sorry? Which I have to admit, I loved at the time. I was <laughs> yeah. And it, it's a film that is, was filmed in Bavaria, and they wanted it to be a 
sort of an internationalist feel that it's about all humanity. It's about the whole world. And Willy Wonka puts on a competition that's international. That's the whole idea. So it's inclusive of the whole world. Uh, and yet the, the winners, the people who find these random gold tickets in the Willy Wonka chocolate factories and are thus entitled to enter the, um, the, the chocolate factory itself, they are all from Europe and America. Um, they are all from, there's Augustus Gluck from, from Germany. There's, um, oh, what's that horrible English girl? It's just fantastic performance. Um, um, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And a couple of really obnoxious Americans. And you, there's these panning shots. They have the crowd scenes and all these kids are cheering Willy Wonka. There's not a person of color in the crowd and going, this is the 1970s Hollywood view of the world. It is a white country. It is a white planet. And I'm going, when they talk about system, and, and, and this is being transmitted to kids. And when they're talking about um, sending a message and systemic racism, even unwitting, it's, this film is made by people who probably never regarded themselves as bigots and yet, the, uh, there's clearly an issue there which we are grappling with in the 21st century. Um, and, and your experience is very much part of that. And you would have gone out into that Hollywood and they would have used the same excuses. So something needs changing. And the question is how? And- uh, I'll say two things in defense of the chocolate factory. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, but in the original novel, the Oompa Loompas were these little black people, remember? Little, little, little pygmies who smiled all the time and were as dark as the chocolate itself. In the movie, they change them to little white people. So Well, they're, they're green, I think. Or... They're green. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. They're not black. Yeah. You have consciousness to make that change, which <laughs> racism was rampant in children's books. Dr. Doolittle, we can go down the list. Yeah, 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 yeah. Books that I read that I, that I, that I didn't know any better. I love these books, but there was very clear racism in a lot of these books by a lot of these authors, many of them British, many of them European. Um, so there was one thing. And then Charlie Bucket, the hero, the hero of Charlie and Chocolate Factory was this very poor white child. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't, I didn't know there were very poor white people like that. I thought, <laughs> I thought they were all pretty well off. Even when they weren't well off, they were comfortable. It fascinated me that he was so poor that he didn't have enough to eat. He's eating cabbage water. Yes, and I, I will never forget that. I was so, I was just very, I very much resonated with Charlie Buck. I wasn't that poor. I mean, I felt wealthy by comparison. Yeah. I, I sort of, I guess, took the elements of the things I could identify with and kept them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, but yeah, uh, it, for 1971, that movie was, was probably quite advanced, I guess. Mm -hmm. or, as an improvement on, on um, you know what what had come before. Yes. Yeah, it's complicated, right? So lo and behold, a few years later, the um, the theater, the National Theater, and this this started, but oh, I noticed it around 2015 when I was attending conferences of um, national conferences of theater, and people were looking around the room and going, you know, it's just white people here. Um, running the theater and this is now we're waking from a collective slumber it certainly has not been a slumber for people of color who have been very cognizant of it 
through the decades, but it is for the white population. And then um, suddenly we have to deal with this. And the very principles, these are not, um, these are not right-wing zealots. These are not overt racists. They actually do believe, so many of them grew up in the civil rights era and they do believe in equality and social justice and all those principles. And yet, and yet here we are. And that's the paradox. How do we deal with it? And um, I have sent you a, a document that's been floating around and being discussed quite a bit this week. It's called the LA Anti-Racist Theater Standards Document. And um, it is a proposal of how to make substantive change to a system that has proven unable to change itself despite the, the good intentions of the, of the people in power. But people running theaters, again, are, are probably better intentioned than, than most people say running the country. So um, I just like if you could weigh in on your reactions to both the content and the um, ideals of the document and then its uh, proposed practices of implementation. Well, I would say, first of all, I just thought of this, it would be better if these prints, the whole document came from white people and not from other, not from black people or people of color, because then of course, the, you know, it's people of color policing white people, which there's always tension there. There's always mm. resentment. And, mm. it, and if indeed people, you know, believed in these principles, you know, um, then, then implementing them would be the next logical step. But that has proven to be a very hard step as, you know, things just haven't changed. I yeah. think, I think, and I'm, I use this in a very general way, white people really think that believing in equality is enough. It's not, <laughs> no, yeah. no. Therefore, in my mind, it is done. There's nothing I actually need to do. Yeah. And I think that um, the, pro, the, the really, and Americans really don't like to do it. Because we're, I know we're talking about the national theater, but it's an inconvenience. And Americans as a people hate to be inconvenienced. So this requires us to do something and, and not just this thing or that thing, but the document, you know, it's what, 10 or 11 pages, or let's say eight pages. Um, it's a lot of things to um, consider, but I would say looking, looking over all of them, what it's really trying to get at piece by piece, you know, bullet point by bullet point, which is so off-putting, the bullet points, you know, <laughs> um, um, it's really just trying to, sh trying to shift the consciousness of, yeah. of in this case, theater. Um, so that, you know, including people um, um, being more, you know, like reconsidering the whole idea of blind casting, which is really oppressive in a way, um, making, making theater tickets more accessible so the more people can come, um, um, just kind of being more open and, and, and sort of recentering theater. That's what that's the norm they're going for. They're going for a new norm. So so that we don't, you know, so at some point we don't need these rules. And it looks like social engineering. And it kind of is, because that's the only way, frankly, a lot of white people will deign to change. And even then sometimes it doesn't work. We've seen it, you know, in other areas like um, um, school integration. It really mm -hmm. never happened because people were so fiercely opposed to it. Um, housing integration never really happened because people moved away. So it's just, it's just, um, I think, asking people to really be more self-aware, and not just that, but to really, first of all, you have to, you have to want to change. You have, you have to think, as I, as you think, 
you know, the, the, the incredible whiteness of this is, is, is wrong, or if not wrong, it's not a good look, or, you know, or, <laughs> something with you, like, you know, they're, 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 this could be better. Yeah. I think, unfor- uh, my feeling is many people maybe privately think things are just fine the way they are, um, or I can change it 10%, but that's all I'm going to do. So the real hard problem is the people in control are still in control. And as Frederick Douglass said, power just never concedes things. When, I, I'm paraphrasing. Power concedes nothing without demands. And these demands, I think, um, are not, they're not new, but they are new, I think, in the arts. And I think we, <coughs> we will chafe with them because the arts, of all things, should be someone's vision. It's not a business place. It's not a site of government. It's it's, you know, and, and as you so, the, so this is the core difference between the social engineering for school integration and the social engineering for integrated housing and the social engineering to try to make the arts more inclusive is that uh, you're going after people's core artistic creativity. You're telling them how to run their theaters. Yes, and, but as you know, people can also hide behind their core artistic creativity and you know that's but that's the thing. Creativity is sort of anti-rules, right? It just kind of yeah. is. So I think what what this document's trying to do, trying to do is expand the imagination of people in theater. Let's look at it as that way. You know, look at it in that sense. It's trying to expand the imagination, which sounds much better than you know enforcing diversity rules. <laughs> yeah. So, right. But it truly is. I think that's really what it's what it's trying to do is expand the imagination um, so so that again you know we 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 will we can normalize including people um, giving them i hate the i kind of grown hate the word agency but you know mm-hmm. um, that and 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 doing all these things that when you, when you put it on paper it sounds so heavy and so um, bureaucratic almost but really i think it's going for something much different it's going for something lighter and something uplifting and something good for all of us not like medicine but you know in terms of in terms of our creativity and our you know mind expansiveness um and that, that's my best read of it you know but again it would be nice if if these were created by these rules were created by the institutions themselves um, on the other hand do institutions police themselves very well no <laughs> they don't mm-hmm. so, you know look it, it's not it's really not, it's not either or, it's awkward. It's, um, it would be great if we didn't have to do this at all or people didn't feel a need to do it. But theater um, has been, we've had this discussion in the past, a very sort of white um, business um, in terms of the people behind it and the audiences mm-hmm. uh, and all that. So um, I remember this was an issue August Wilson, just the whole whiteness of theater. Yes. But, but you know, uh, much of the support came from white audiences and, and the white theater, you know, um, industry. So, you know, it's kind of bedeviling, but, but this is a kind of ask I think August Wilson would approve of. Yeah. If yeah. that counts for anything. No, it does. It's very interesting. What about the um, implementation of it? Do you have any thoughts on that? How do you think it's going to play out or... <clears throat> knowing what you know, you've you've covered the LA theater scene, and you 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 go to plays, and you've you you're so you're not you're not somebody who 
who drops in once a year to see a play. Um, how do you see this actually playing out knowing what you know of the LA theater community? I think it really depends on the production. I think it really depends on project. I've seen, you know, yeah, that was my one of my favorite parts. That was my favorite part of being staff writer at the weekly was doing these weekly theater reviews and just seeing what's out there. Um, look, this isn't going to work for, say, a one-man show, like a memoir-type one-man show about, you know, growing up gay and whatever. I've seen brilliant shows like that that are just, you know, they're a one-person story. And these rules, in a way, don't, they just don't apply. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I've seen, but then I've been to very big houses, you know, where, where these kinds of considerations make more sense. Um, um, I've seen mid-sized productions um, where, uh, you know, people, I mean, I've seen some really interesting choices made in casting in a lot of shows that, that are really brilliant and that, and that follow all of these rules, you know, mm -hmm. they were there, they, 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 you know, they were, and they made for really great casting and production and all that. But overall, I would say my expectation, because we're all conditioned the same way, my expectation most of the time was to see a white cast. Not that the play wouldn't be brilliant, but, but I really started to realize I was conditioned to not expect anything else. And that becomes, you know, um, uh, kind of dangerous. Has had that before? I know we have to kind of draw a line of going to the theater, which ends in 2020. But in the years, say from 2015 to 2020, did that still apply? Because my observation was there was a change actually going on, not in the administration of the theaters, which remained robustly white, yeah. but um, but in the casting, the the that you were starting to see a shift. That's my perspective. And I'm wondering if you share that because I wasn't seeing everything that's out there. Oh, I wasn't either, but I, I think you're right. I think that was starting to happen. So, um, um, and then we had this, well, we've had this, what, almost two year interruption, but I think it was going that way. Um, so, but now with this new, you know, we had, we had a, we had a um, kind of a, uh, uh, you know, the movement in 2020 after George Floyd, you know, suddenly people were intensely conscious about what's always been true, which is that, you know, there's racial inequality and suddenly we must do something about it. I think these, these, of course, you know, these rules come out of that. Um, yes, very much it, so. And, and of course, you know, when you say <clears throat> a document is about anti-racism, it's, you know, it wouldn't have to exist if there wasn't racism. And so, um, you're not going to get rid of it overnight. Um, and I think that, you know, this kind of effort is sort of like start, you know, it's like when you're negotiating something, you put all of your, all, you put your wish list on the table. This is what everything we should be doing right now. And I don't think you can expect that'll, that'll all happen right now, but, but you're putting everything out there. And if people do five of, if people do three or four of the, of the, 30 things or I don't know 20 things that is a huge improvement and mm -hmm. hopefully they, they sort of build themselves and they all sort of logically connect to each other um some of them some of them make a lot more sense than others or you know seem much more reasonable than others though the, the big issue is when you put sort of this wish list and this really kind of good thing into in the form of demands you know people people kind of naturally um resent it or 
they're probably not going to immediately say, oh, this is all, you know, I, I'm going to do all this, you know, I'm tomorrow in my next production or it's, it's, it's probably not going to work that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's very but interesting. Attempt, you know, it's the attempt um, that I think matters. I think that's what they're trying to get going is the, the, just the attempt to do these things will engender change. Yes. And as long as people don't quit, as long as they say, well, I did that and I don't have to do that again. If just the attempt can be incorporated into theater, um, that will expand consciousness, I think. That's great. I have the final question for you. Um, and that's about, about consciousness and the larger state of the country. How this movement on this attempt is positioned in the national culture, which is so polarized and it's absolutely clear from, oh, just from the refugee crisis at the border from the Haitians being sent back from um, the, boy, we, we, we continue to be a nation of tribes that's, that would like to be, some people would like to say it's a melting pot and we're proving over and over again how that is just not the case. Um, how does a movement like this feed into the national narrative as we head into the midterm elections of 2022 and, and, and Trump's probably going to rerun in 2024. That, that's becoming increasingly clear. I hope you're wrong about that. Um, but, um, well, it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? We basically have two, we have two opposition, we have two forces kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of parallel, they're not parallel, but they're completely opposite. One movement, this nativist movement to double down on racism and anti-immigration and, and, you know, very, very openly and, and to not believe in fair elections and all, all that. Yes. Yeah. On the other side are, is, you know, the, um, the anti-racist movement, which is not just about, you know, rules like this, like, but actually, you know, kind of excavating American history and looking at everything, shining a light on everything and seeing, going back to the beginning and really, really admitting what's wrong. I mean, these are two very diametrically opposed energies. I They're two, two, two narratives. They're two, just two different creation myths. There is no, they're true. We've been saying for many years now, there's no, you know, the middle class is disappearing. Well, economically, yes, but also philosophically, that yeah. it's disappearing. There's, you cannot sort of stand in the middle and say, well, I, you know, I agree to disagree with, I mean, this, <laughs> this yeah. is really about, are you, are, do we embrace our, do we, do we sort of accept our history as, as flawed and we need to change it? Or do we just proudly perpetuate it? That's it. There's no, there seems to be no other choice. And so I don't know where it's going to end up. It's really that this is where it feels like a real war ideologically, but, but, you know, we, we've seen actual war. We've seen violence in this country over things like critical race theory. And, and I could, I could see somebody, you know, convening a rally because, you know, over these rules of theater, like, you know, people get very, uh, getting very upset about these ongoing efforts to change the, um, to, to basically acknowledge that history and to move forward in a different way. There are a lot of people opposed to that as we, we've seen. And I do not know how these two things will reconcile or if they can, I, that is a great unknown. Um, mm -hmm. just kind of, it's kind of remarkable and encouraging to me though that there is this other side of let's do the right thing. Let's overcorrect, let's, let's do it like we've never done it before. 
let's get uncomfortable. Let's let's rub people the wrong way in the name of including all of us. That's a very brave thing to do. It's not, it's not going to be perfect. People ask me all the time, how do I be anti-racist? I'm like, I have no idea. We're not so proud of it. You know, we have, we have hundreds of, we are really good at oppression. We've done that really well, um, but we're not good at this at all. We have very little experience, but we're trying. We are, we are bumbling along at the worst possible moment or maybe at the perfect moment. Um, and it, it's, it's where it's going or where it'll end up. Or I, I, I don't know. Do you? Do you have any idea? I don't. No, no. This is a very bad time to be a prophet. Very bad time to be a pollster, right? <laughs> yes, that's true, too. The modern prophets, right? The pollsters. Erin <laughs> Aubrey Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Stephen. It was great. Next week, we're joined by playwright and movie producer Sham Bitterman. Sham's work has been produced and developed at theaters across the country, including the Mark Taper Forum, Actors Theater of Louisville, South Coast Rep, Jiva, Steppenwolf, Sundance, Midwest, Midwest Play Labs, the WPA Theater, uh, Padua Playwrights. I could go on and maybe next week I will. Mm -hmm.